0: Let us join together in our first lesson. It comes today from the book of Genesis in the 17th chapter, beginning with the first verse. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between you, and you will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell to his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall name be Abram, but I shall name you Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you to your offspring after you." Moving on to verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife. You shall not call her Sarai anymore, but, you, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she will give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell to his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is ninety-year-old, bear a child? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Our second lesson will be taken from the Gospel of Mark. We are in the 8th chapter, in verses 31 through 38. These are familiar words, kind of the core of who we are as Christians, but I invite you to hear again with fresh ears. That is chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I should have done this last week, but I'll do it this week. This will help me to minister to you more effectively, administer pastoral care when necessary. So I will ask you, um, how many University of Georgia fans do we have? Raise your hand. Let's see, 14, carry the three, looks to be about 417. Good. Um, Alabama? Alabama fans? Okay, that's about 250, good, good. Uh, Auburn fans and that, oh my gosh, about eight hundred right there, Fan and you in the balcony saw you too. Good, um, great programs, great schools, great schools without football, even better schools with good football. It's fun, isn't it? It's always nice and helpful when your team wins, or at least they are competitive. It is exciting. So Nick Saban, Alabama. Kirby Smart, Georgia, and Gus Malzong, Auburn, they're big shots, right? You can see them sitting around talking together, because I'm sure they go see movies and have lunches and stuff like that. I'm sure they're all friends. Maybe not. But they'd probably be talking about themselves. What might they sing or say to each other? How about this? Big reputations, big reputations. Oh, you and me, we got big reputations. Ah, and I know you heard about me. Oh, we got some big enemies. You can see them saying that, can't you? All about the reputation, puffing up the chair. Yeah, you heard about me. We've got some enemies, you too. But all about the reputations. Of course, that is Taylor Swift from her song, Endgame. And I, I know I don't have to uh, explain, uh, Taylor Swift, popular artist, she's great, in this song, and she asked me to call her T-Swizzle, so that's what I will do. She didn't ask me. <laughs> she, this song is about she and, it's surprising, a, a boy she's dating. It's about a relationship. I know, very different departure for her. It's not. But the boyfriend is apparently dating several women at the same time, Taylor Swift being one of them, and she doesn't like it. I want to be your A team. I want to be your first string. I want to be your end game. That's the name of the song. She wants to be the only one that this guy is with. She's not going to play with all these other girls. Whatever your reputations are, that's what she wants. So we've got our coaches puffing up with their big reputations. We've got Taylor and her boyfriend with their reputations. And even Jesus and Peter, I think, could sing this together. Big reputations. You and me, we got big reputations. I know you heard about me. And we've got some big enemies. Right? They already know this. In our passage for today from Mark, It is exactly about these reputations, about them figuring out who Jesus is and who they are in response to who Jesus is. Right before we begin in 8.31, we have just come off of Peter, who is great, he himself, a big reputation, represents you and me. Sometimes he is up and he is on. He says the right things, he is faithful and steadfast, and then other times he is a mess will not get it, will turn away from Christ and denies him three times at the cross, uh, at the crucifixion. And of course, Jesus, now coming in to who he is, people starting to see that something different is going on. He has been teaching, he has been healing, and people are starting to follow. There's a crowd following him that he will turn to and talk to in this scene. So you've got Peter, you've got Jesus. Jesus big reputations. And right before this verse it's that great part where Jesus is asking who do they outside of the disciples say that he is? Jesus is saying, who do they say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah. And then he focuses it and says, who do you say that I am? And there's silence. And then Peter steps up and says, You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Yes. This is it. This is Peter's one of Peter's shining moments. And in Matthew's Gospel, this is where Jesus says, Peter, only God could have revealed this to you. I'm changing your name. You will be Peter, the rock. And on you I will build my church. The gates of Hades will never prevail against it. I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. All those jokes about meeting at the the pearly gates and and St. Peter right there. You've got to, you know, coerce your way in or whatever all those jokes are about. This is from this passage. Jesus will give him the keys to the kingdom. Oh, what a great day for Peter. And literally the next verse here, he's up and then he's back down again. So the first thing that Jesus does is tells them that he has to go through suffering, betrayal, be rejected by the Pharisees, the chief priests, and then die, suffer, die, and then the third day rise again. And Peter, without hesitation, he goes up to Jesus and he says, uh, Jesus and he rebukes Jesus, rebukes him. That is a strong word. That is the word that is used when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Jesus rebukes him using those quotes from Deuteronomy to battle those three temptations. Rebuke is a hard word. He doesn't just call him aside and say, ho, ho, easy, easy, I'm not sure what you're talking about. He rebukes him which means it's a, it's a stop. That's not right. You are wrong. We can't hear that. That is not what we want. And they're running up against the understanding of what a Messiah is for Peter, those disciples, and the, the, under, the, the crowd of that day. The Messiah, as we know, was seen to be one with might and power and strength that would come with guns blaring Metaphorically, but it would be one that would be of force, of military. When they heard the word Messiah, they were thinking finally, someone will come and liberate us, in this case, from the Romans. They have occupied our lands, our territories. We are their subjects, their servants in some cases. And the Messiah will come and overthrow them, give us our land and our lives back under no one's oppressive regime. And that comes all the way back from Daniel, Old Testament. The idea of the Son of Man, that phrase, being a heavenly figure sent to release them. And Jesus uses it here again, but adds suffering to it. So Peter, which we can understand, it's the first time they have heard something different than what they have been taught, what they've always understood, and that is the Messiah will be strong and powerful and forceful and is, in a sense, a political leader that will overtake those occupying their land. And Jesus says, no, it's different this time. I'm telling you what kind of Messiah I'm going to be, and I need you to hear me, Peter. And actually, it's kind of a rough interchange exchange. Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes Peter. Rebuke me, I'll rebuke you. A little De Niro, right, I think. Rebuke me. So Jesus turns right around to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand what you were saying. You are focused on earthly things, not divine things. I'm telling you what has to happen. This is God's plan. It has to happen this way. And when you rebuke me, Peter, and say that this can't be the way, then you are trying to thwart God's will and my mission here. That's a pretty big deal, too. So right before again, Peter is up, you are the Messiah, woo, Peter, i going to build my church on you. And literally the next few verses, Peter flip-flops and is compared to Satan and gets it all wrong. And again, we would be the same, we're no different than Peter would be. It's a lot for these disciples to understand. It goes against so much of literally generations of teaching about what would be coming, especially with this Messiah. So after that part, Jesus then turns to the crowd. crowd is right there. And he starts to talk to them a little bit. And he says, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. Pick up your cross and follow me. And if you're ashamed of me now, I will be ashamed of you Later. Dun, dun, dun. That's in some translations right at the end of that story. Dun, dun, dun. Let's talk about that first part. So deny yourself. Pick up, take up the cross and follow me. So the piece that Jesus is adding in is suffering. Picking up your cross is a hard thing. Even Jesus needs help. When he goes to be crucified, of course, he's been beaten. It's been an awful, terrible, tragic couple of days for Jesus. And he's weak. They recruit Simon of Cyrene to come help him with his cross. And Jesus is saying, if you want a part of me and my world, you have to pick up your cross as well. Well, what does that mean? Well, crosses are hard. They're heavy. They're difficult. They hurt when you carry them. In other words, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. There will be suffering. Who wants in? Woo! Where do I sign? But when you think about it, it's not really all that different to the things that are important to you in your life. For example, think back through your life. What are you proud of? What are your accomplishments that you are the most excited about? someone were to say, give me a highlight of your life, and my guess is those are the things, whether it's educational processes, whether it's a job, whether it's relationships, your marriage, being a child, being a parent, a grandparent, It's achieving certain vocational goals, maybe even financial goals or health goals or all of those things. My guess is most of those did not come easy to you. My guess is you had to deny yourself to get those things done. And a lot of that didn't happen overnight. You worked hard. You continued to work hard. And in that, you have denied so that you can achieve the goals that you have set out for yourself. It's really not that different here, just more dramatic and with much bigger stakes. This may be the greatest goal of your life, to pick up your cross and walk with Christ. Knowing that it's not just the cross, with the cross comes the empty tomb as Christ is raised and your place in both of those events, both of those moments in time that we continue to seek to live into. Lifting our crosses is difficult. Christ has given us the gift of one another so that when it is too heavy to follow, when it is too heavy to bear the burden of our faith, we need only reach on either side of us and know that our church family has us, has our backs, and can help us carry some of the burden. We celebrate together as a church family. We hold each other in times of tragedy and distress. We carry our collective cross as a church family. Jesus never said it would be easy. More than that, he continues to say it really is not more than not just easy it will be hard and difficult and even painful but again it is through that pain that you will experience even more closeness with christ more faith more joy more grace but yes the self denial is a part of our journey and it's not saying the self is bad Because you are not bad. You are good and created good. But when the self takes over everything else, which it often and easily can, then there's no room for Christ in there. There's no room for the Holy Spirit to move. And it's not just your journey, then others that we are supposed to be helping in a variety of ways, from meals to clothing to food to sharing our faith, cannot hear those words, they cannot receive our help because we are too centered on who we are. But this is saying, just push yourself back and down a little bit. Make a little more room for me. It's a lot of what this Lenten journey is about, this six-week journey toward the cross and the empty tomb. It is a time for introspection, A time to look to say, am I a Christian? If so, what does that look like? How do I need to maybe set some new goals and priorities? Has the self taken over? How do I get Christ back again? Either dedicate or rededicate myself to this journey. Because we need it as individuals and the world needs it to reap the benefits of our faith and spreading of that word And to see God's light and grace through each one of you and through us as a church family. It's hard. Difficult. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor born in 1906. And right around the time of Hitler and the Nazis' rise in World War II, he was one of the first pastors to stand up and speak against what was happening. He seemed to be able to clearly see that whatever was happening through Hitler and the Nazis needed to be resisted from the start. The second day after Hitler was elected chancellor, Bonhoeffer was providing messages of resistance on the radio, and they shut him down. He did everything he could. He was an early part of what came to be known as the Confessing Church. Those were those who banded together in Germany to resist the evil and tyranny of Hitler and the Nazi Party. He came to the United States, to New York, to Union Seminary in New York. He found it, he said, kind of an empty place, but it was his relationships that transformed him. He said the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem... Predominantly African-American, he saw their struggles with civil rights even in the early 1940s. And he said after those experiences and encounters, he realized he was just living his faith, his phrases, his theology, all in his head, and he said this helped him put some reality to it. In other words, we can't just live our faith in our head as intellectual exercises. I hear what you say, preacher. I got it. Yeah, good sermon this week. I'll put that up there, and I'll keep bouncing stuff up against it as I continue on. And that's good, and we need to do that. But what he was saying is that Scripture needs to become reality. We need to be involved in concrete actions and steps taken to help others as we seek to bear our cross and help them with theirs. Transformative for him. And for the youth out there that are around driving age, he failed his driving test three times in the United States. But he got it, so stick with it. You're going to be great. But one of the things, oh, and, and Bonhoeffer, again, just this neighborhood pastor, kind of this theologian, had his little round Harry Potter glasses on. He participated in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. A lot of you all know his great history. But he was caught, obviously the attempt did not work, but from that time, 1943, he was arrested and condemned to die. April 9th, 1945, in Flossberg concentration camp, he was executed, hanged, for his resistance and his attempt on Hitler's life. Two weeks before the U.S. Infantry Divisions 90 and 97 would liberate that camp two weeks. But one of the great things to come out of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not only his amazing journey, but as a theologian, one of his best-known concepts is cheap grace versus costly grace. And this is, in, in our context, standing by the cross or lifting the cross. Cheap grace is just what it sounds like. We are happy to come to church when we can get there. We are happy to ask God's forgiveness. God, forgive me. Okay, I'll take it. We are happy to take God's love, God's grace through Jesus Christ. I'm ready for the afterworld when it's time, Lord, because I'm in. I'm a believer. Okay, and that's a step in the right direction. We start there. But that's the easy part. Why? Because you've not done anything on your part but just received. Be open and receive. And again, that's a part. But the costly grace is what Bonhoeffer did. He stood up and said, this is not right. We have to resist this evil in the world. Other people are being hurt and we cannot condone this. We have to do better or different. Costly grace means we are sacrificing. We put ourselves in a place where we have to deny ourselves, where we have to work and serve others. It's not just about us and our faith. It's what we're doing on the outside when we leave on Sunday mornings. This cannot be a place, this beautiful sanctuary, where we come and we sit, and that's all we do all week. Then we come back next week and we do it again. We've got to be living just like Jesus' model. Got the disciples together, taught them, prayed with them, and then sent them out. It's what we are to do as a church. If we sit in the pews and nobody ever hears a word of us, nobody ever sees an action from us that shows that we are caring for others in Christ's name, then we are missing out for ourselves and certainly for the world. Cheap grace versus costly grace. And we're, we're there in both places at different times, depending on the day, depending on the season in life. But our goal is to continue to push ourselves outside of our comfort zones, to make those sacrifices, to lift that heavy burden of the cross, not for the sake of suffering, but for the sake of following. Jesus doesn't say, lift up your cross and hold it. Go. Go. He says, pick it up and follow me. And if you can't do it, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you some other people at First Presbyterian Church, some other people in your family, some friends, some other people in the community, some other people in the world that will help you lift that cross. And you know what? You need to help them lift it as well. So it is about big reputations as T. Swizzle started us with. And it is Christ in this case saying, I need you to be completely devoted and dedicated to me. Just like she was trying to get her boyfriend to make that kind of commitment to her. Christ is saying, yourself isn't bad, but I need you, I need all of you. And yourself is wonderful, and in there, but don't let it take over the rest. Don't, like Peter, be focused so much on human things that we don't get to experience the joy of the divine things. Our Lenten journey is about walking with Christ to the cross. Rembrandt, Dutch famous painter, born in 1606. His depiction of, he did a a painting called The Three Crosses, with Jesus on the cross and the two thieves on either side. And in the crowd, you see Mary, you see the Roman soldiers on horses. He painted himself in that crowd. Why? To represent you and me, that we were there with him as well. And in the same way that we experience Christ on the cross, lifting that cross and walking with it, We will also experience the joy of the risen Christ, the empty tomb, and the leading of the Holy Spirit from Pentecost on. It's a way to say that we are engaged with Christ in this journey. We all have our cross to bear, as you've heard it said, but we're not expected to go alone, and we're not expected to just hold it. We pick it up so we can follow, individually and together. That is our suffering and joyful journey, especially in this Lenten walk. So who are we as Christians? We are those who seek to deny ourselves, pick up that cross for all of its difficulty and splinters, but also all of its joy. So let us go from here as God's people, strong, resolved, weak, and feel the presence of Christ leading us. Hallelujah. Amen.